Um, anyways, we are thrilled to have you guys here this morning. We have more information week to week. On, you can follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. But we are thrilled to have you guys here this morning. We're going to be in Acts 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Acts 19, beginning in verse 23. Luke writes that at about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours would fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and the city was filled with confusion. Will you pray with me? Father God, I give you great thanks that you are good. Uh, that you are our king, you are our hope, you are our joy and our security. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, even as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would move into our hearts and into our minds and that your spirit would guide us and direct us. And I pray for us as well that you'd give us courage to hear your word and to really truly hear your spirit. Father, I pray that you would take our time wherever it is that you see fit this morning and that you would accomplish in and through us whatever it is that you desire. Uh, Might you allow our hearts to be receptive and soften to you, and might your spirit illuminate our minds that we could grasp and understand your word. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, a lot of you guys know that Marcy and I have a three-year-old girl, and we have a a little baby boy who's almost a year, and so every night there's a ritual that occurs around our uh, little girl's uh, bedtime routine, all right? So there's a certain uh, routine that we do that's every single night, it's repetitive, but there's also an arsenal of items that are part of her bedtime experience, all right? Uh, She literally has a little glowing alarm clock, all right? She actually has a sound machine right by her ear to to drown out any sounds of a baby crying in the next room, all right? She also has a camera in her room so that we can see her at all watches of the night, and hear her if she's crying, which actually I think would be great to put in in anyone's office, just kind of spy in on people, right? Which would be awesome, all right? Uh, But not just that kind of stuff, but she also has a a series of things that goes in her bed that's absolutely critical for her to sleep. And I actually brought those items here this morning, all right? I never really do show and tell with you guys this morning until now. So this is going to be awesome, all right? I'm kind of excited, all right? But I brought you guys her four most critical items that really go into any bedtime experience, all right? First is, this is her little dog pillow, all right? This, This guy is absolutely crucial. She sleeps with this. She loves this to death, all right? Second of all, another part of this whole experience is, is her little doll, Molly Kate, all right? Molly Kate's been through the ringer a few times. She's not looking the cleanest these days, all right? But most critical of all the things that is in her bedtime routine are her two matching identical bear blankets, all right? I will tell you that she guards these and loves these things with the entirety of her being and her life, all right? So imagine if we go on a road trip, this whole, this whole thing goes with us, this whole suitcase thing, Mabobber goes with us, all right? And now imagine if you will, for just a second, imagine if it's crazy and we're traveling, we're packing up. Imagine if we forget bear blankets, all right? I cannot tell you what would break loose and I cannot imagine and explain to you how much she would go through the roof because... All of life, all hope, all perspective would be lost at that point, all right? She would go absolutely crazy, all right? She would begin to channel the very bare traits that exist in the bare blanket that's missing, and she would attack us with grizzly-like passion, all right? 
Because those bear blankets are absolutely essential to life, all right? I actually had to ask her permission this morning just to move them out of her room and to take them up here this morning, but she assured me that we must bring them home after church today, all right? So we're not going to forget these guys, all right? Uh, but here's the thing. Every single one of us has had our own version of, of a bear blanket, right? Some of you guys may not realize this, but Tyler, who leads worship, he had his own version growing up. It was a little stuffed dog that he named Hussy. This is not a lie, all right? So he slept with his little hussy every single night, all right? He took his little hussy everywhere he went. You could not find him without finding his little hussy with him, all right? Now, thankfully, he got past some separation anxiety with his little hussy before he got married because that would have just been awkward, right? But every single one of us has that kind of thing that we grew up with, right? In fact, John Calvin will say, speaking of this idea, that really for many of us as we grow up, what, what starts out with a source of security and a source of protection, like a bare blanket or a blanket or whatever it is that you guys had growing up, eventually as we mature and get older, the Bible will call those things idols, all right? In fact, John Calvin will say, speaking of this very topic, he says that every single one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols, from the moment that you're born, as you step out of the womb, you already know intently how to have an idol and how to uh, experience idolatry, all right? Starts off with a little bare blanket that you think is the very definition of all of life. And if it were lost, if it was forgotten, all of life would be torn apart at the seams. That is idolatry. That kind of experience of something that is other than and separate from God, that, that kind of devotion, that kind of worship, that kind of attachment is what the Bible will refer to later on as idolatry. I'll tell you guys, for me, many times as I've walked through the scriptures and I've I've even heard talks on idolatry, I'll tell you, I've never really gotten it. (laughs) I've never really understood what was all the hubbub about idolatry. What was the big deal with idols, right? Why does anyone get worked up about little statues? What's the big deal? They're all fake. Doesn't everybody know that, right? I'll, I'll tell you guys, as we think about idolatry, I've always personally not really gotten it. Until I got into Acts 19 this week, and a lot of it clicked in for me as to what was going on with idolatry and how it matters in our life, all right? In fact, as we jump into Acts 19, we're going to see not just that idols are going to be identified, but ultimately that they're going to be exposed and threatened, and eventually they're going to attack. That you may not know what an idol is until it's threatened, until it's put in jeopardy and put at risk, because then you begin to find out by its mode of attack and how it responds that you have an idol. In fact, we're going to title Acts 19 this morning, When Idols Attack, because we're going to see an idol that's going to be exposed in the life of Ephesus. And when it's put at risk and when it's threatened and pushed against, all of a sudden, all heck breaks loose. Chaos, confusion, anger, everything goes crazy when all of a sudden the idols of our lives and our culture are threatened and put at risk. That's where we're going to head this morning in Acts 19. And ultimately, it's going to begin with uh, a giant disturbance. Notice verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. And so all of a sudden, as this passage opens, it opens with a threat to an idol, all right? I'm going to let you guys know that this is a threat to an idol, but ultimately one of the ways that you know that idols are threatened is because of the nature and the severity of the disturbance that that breaks out, all right? And ultimately a disturbance is going to break out in Acts 19, verse 23, and you're going to get a cast of characters that are part of this scene beginning in verse 24. You're going to get get what I think is the antagonist of the story. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business. I love how Luke does this, no little, no small, but they're giant moments, right? So they were bringing tons of business to the craftsmen. Verse 25, and these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Well, who were these guys and what was going on? 
the text says you get three groups of people. First of all, you get Demetrius, you get then skilled craftsmen, and you get workmen, all right? You get a group of people that are all engaged in, according to the text, uh, people who are making idols or statutes, silver statutes of a person named Artemis, who later on in the text we find is the goddess that is a part of Ephesus, all right? And so I want to give you guys a little bit of background as to what was going on in Ephesus, all right? In Ephesus was a thing called the Temple of Artemis that was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, all right? It was giant in its reputation. It was giant also as a uh, commercialized production that was bringing in a ton of money to Ephesus, all right? In fact, uh, commentaries will speak of the size of the temple as being something larger than a football field, all right? So the temple of Artemis, I'm going to give you guys a picture, was actually larger than Kyle Field, all right? Um, If you guys have seen the renovation pictures, I think this is going to be amazing, all right? But uh, now just think about... Obviously, Kyle Field is, is a giant structure built around a football field, but think about just the football field itself for a minute, all right? The Temple of Artemis was actually by width and by length larger than a football field. Obviously, by height and by the surrounding structure, it didn't compare to Kyle Field that's coming and it's going to be amazing next year, all right? But here is a more uh, mock-up of what the Temple of Artemis was likely to look like, all right? Giant structure on a giant set of grounds. And so if you will imagine this as a clean little artistic picture but imagine in the life of the Temple of Artemis, what was going on on the steps, what was going on around the surrounding areas. This was a hugely commercialized thing, right? It wasn't just men and women coming to make uh, profession and sacrifice to the goddess of Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility, not just for agricultural, but for, uh, for physical bodies as well. And so anything that a person wanted, by at large, ran through the goddess Artemis. And so people would come all throughout Asia to Ephesus to visit the Temple of Artemis, where guess what they would do? They'd offer not only financial sacrifice, some commentaries will say that they actually even offered child sacrifice to appease the goddess Artemis so that they could have fertility in their lives, so that their grounds could have fertility, that everything could go great for them, and that they would have not just provision, but also protection. Incredible sacrifices that were made here. But not just in the temple. Think about the life of the, of the area around the temple. So people are making little statues. Everyone's got their livelihood attached to this temple, all right? This is an incredibly commercialized place now. You guys think about, if you guys have been to any of the religious uh, sites around the world today, they've all become commercialized at some level. If you've ever been to the Blue Mosque in Istanbul, incredible merchants, incredible business going on around and through and in that mosque. Uh, if you've ever been even to the Vatican in Italy, whether it's tours or whatever it is, it's become, it's at some level become commercialized. Incredible commerce and industry is running around and because of that thing, all right? And so it's not just religious places, but any great wonders in the world, any great touristic sites become great commercialized places because they're huge for the life of the city. In fact, in many ways, Ephesus had become like a modern-day New York City, right? Ephesus was not just located uh, conveniently in terms of uh, travel routes, but because of the travel routes and because of the Temple of Artemis, they had become probably the center, financially speaking, of the, of the ancient world, all right? Huge, huge businesses were running because of the Temple of Artemis, all right? And so what you have happening is you have a group of people who are running their lives and gaining their prosperity off of people's attention and affection to the goddess Artemis, all right? And meanwhile, another person enters the scene named Paul, all right? Uh, According to uh, verse uh, 26, uh, pick it up with me, if you will. He says, uh, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, right? I imagine uh, like Seinfeld who goes, Newman, right? Uh, this is kind of how I see Demetrius doing this, all right? This Paul, right? Uh, but what was Paul doing though? Why, why were they so angered by Paul? What was Paul up to, all right? It's interesting here in the text because you get the story breaking out about uh, what he was doing and preaching. Notice uh, as it goes on, it says, This Paul had persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. 
saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Acts 19 is a really interesting passage in the book of Acts because this is one of the very few passages we get that doesn't have a sermon, right? No one's up preaching, no one's in a church, no one's delivering an address. This is just Demetrius who's going off the handle, upset with what Paul is doing and the influence Paul is having, not just in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. And notice, basically all we get sermon-wise is a clip it, a snippet of a sermon that he's quoting from in another text at some point in time. What Demetrius is picking up on has nothing to do with the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with what Paul was saying about idols, right? In fact, I was looking back and thinking more about this topic. As you look back throughout the book of Acts, every time Paul shows up, he's not going to talk just about Jesus and his death resurrection, but he's going to talk about idols a lot. If you guys were with us three weeks ago, and the last time we were in the book of Acts, we looked at Acts chapter 17, and Paul was standing in Athens at Mars Hill speaking to the citizens of Athens. And you guys remember how the passage started? He was buying his time. He was just waiting around, and his spirit was provoked because he was in the city, and he was looking at the fact that the city was full of what? Idols, right? He stands in the Parthenon, and he sees a collection of gods or idols, right? And so his spirit is provoked, and so he addresses not just the nature of idolatry, but also who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. Fascinating here what's going on in Acts 19 because it's going to be that issue of idolatry that Paul was preaching against that Demetrius will quote and is the problem here in Acts 19. Paul was anti-idolatry as you would suspect, all right? But it got me thinking and has been made me thinking all week, what is the big deal with idolatry, right? None of us have little statutes in our rooms. None of us have little pictures of somebody hung up on a wall that we're worshiping, all right? We were way too sophisticated for that, we think, right? Idolatry doesn't feel or function to me like it seems like it's often depicted in the, in the Bible, right? It's been the Old Testament or even the New Testament, all right? And so what is the big deal with idolatry? Why is Paul so worked up against it? And why does it create such a big stink here in Acts 19? Even more generically, what does idolatry have to do at all? If you think about the gospel and you think about a relationship with Jesus Christ. What is the relationship of the gospel with idols, right? What is the relationship of uh, what is the relationship or connection between a walk with Jesus Christ and the issue of idolatry in our lives? I want to submit to you guys that I think idolatry is the number one enemy to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just the number one enemy into beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ, but the number one enemy also to continuing and maintaining a vibrant, deep, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Idolatry was huge for the city of Ephesus. It was huge in the Old Testament, and it's also huge for you and I. But I think if you're anything like me, I don't know how to find my idols, and I don't know how to look at idolatry in a contemporary context that you and I live in. But I think Acts 19 is going to help us immensely with that. And in fact, I want to take you guys back to the Old Testament, because we're going to take you guys back to the Ten Commandments, back to Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 5. It's interesting that the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments has everything to do with idolatry. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is a charge against idolatry. In fact, it's been said before that if you could uphold the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, then Numbers 2 and 10 would not be a problem at all. (laughs) If we don't fall to idolatry, then we're not going to fall really likely to the rest of the commandments, right? But the moment that we begin to have idols in our lives and numbers two and ten become into play and we get into issues really quick. Idolatry is a huge issue. Notice how God will speak to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 20. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, and you shall not worship them or serve them. Many of you guys have heard of Exodus 20 before. You've heard the first commandment. 
of the Ten Commandments. And if you're anything like me, you probably just run right past it and run right over it. Think, I don't know what idols are about. I don't know how it impacts my life. All right. So I want to slow down Exodus 20 a little bit and break it apart for you guys and give you guys a few things that I think we can learn about idolatry just from the command against idolatry. All right. A couple of things. At first, I think we realize just from the very outset, why does God say to the nation of Israel from the outset before he gives them the first commandment, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods. Why does he identify himself first before he says, have no other gods? I think one of the first things we realize about idolatry, and this is where I think it connects with our life as well as this, that idolatry at its very nature is this. It's a pursuit of protection and provision from something other than God. God has to remind the nation of Israel, hey, who was it that brought you out of Egypt? <laughs> who was it that provided for you in the wilderness? Me, 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 and me again, right? And so if it was me as your protector and your provider in a way that you could never have imagined or even dreamed of, then don't have other gods because they cannot protect you or provide for you in the way that I can. And that's what idolatry is always. It is a pursuit of protection and provision from something that is other than God, as if something other than God can do that better for us, all right? So one of the first things I want you guys to see about idolatry, even as we think about our own life, it's that, that what idolatry is, is a pursuit for protection and provision from something other than God. Second of all, the command continues and says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below. I think secondly, what we can notice and say is that idolatry is always a man-made substitute for God that caters to the desires of self. Remember, he says, do not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, right? It is a substitute of God, of what God has even created. It's not just a substitute, though. It's a substitute that has been made by man for man's desires and man's purposes. Do not make for yourself an idol, right? The selection, the creation of an idol is all about catering to my own desires and what I need. It's ultimately, therefore, an affront against God as our protector and provider. If we have to go make and select an idol that is other than him, then ultimately what we're saying is this. You don't protect and provide for me in the way that I think I need. You don't know better than I do. That's what idolatry is. It is an affront against the protection and the provision of God as if somebody else can do it better. That's what we believe. And so man creates his own idols. He selects his own idols and they're all to cater to his needs and his desires. But notice where the uh, command ends though. Why does he have to say, you shall not worship them or serve them? Why does he even end the command here? Why is this even necessary? I think it also says something about the nature of idolatry. That it's not just a man-made substitute for God. But ultimately, it's a man-made substitute for God that it seems like it's going to cater to our needs, but eventually we become the ones who worship it and serve it. Idolatry starts out with us creating it, selecting it, because we think we can use it, and it can do something for us. But by the time we get further and further into it, what ends up happening is it's not that we are using it anymore, but it is owning us and has a hold on us at a depth that we may not even realize. Idolatry always begins with the promise of what it can offer and cater to you and I. But it always ends by owning us, blinding us, and putting us into captivity. And all of a sudden, we are the ones who are serving and worshiping what we've created itself, which is just preposterous, right? And so idolatry is this very thing. And I think it's actually, if we were to think of a definition of idolatry, I think we could say this, that idolatry is something that provides you and I significant security and joy in life. That is what provides us significant security and joy in life. And it becomes so central to our lives that if you remove it, all sense of significant security and joy is removed. 
Thomas Oden has said this about idolatry. One has an idol when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. You and I have a desire that is unfulfilled that will make us sad and disappointed. When we have a desire that is unfulfilled or unmet, that makes us sad or disappointed. But when we have an idol that is threatened or unfulfilled, we're not just sad and disappointed. Our very worlds are rocked. Our knees buckle and we cannot imagine what life is meant to look like or how life is meant to function. Which is why sometimes for you and I, we realize what our idols are because life and circumstances go in such a way that the very idols that we did not realize that we are worshiping are unfulfilled in such a way that all of a sudden we lose all perspective. Life is rocking us left and right. We are in a storm that is blowing us all over the place and it's because our idols have been unfulfilled. You know your idols when they are threatening like a storm against you because something that you held on so tightly is being wrestled away from you. When you don't hold on to things tightly and you just have a desire or, or a hope for something and that's uh, unfulfilled, then you can let go of it because you're not wrestling so tightly with it. But when you and I build our lives around something that we think is so central to life, so central to significance, so central to joy, all of a sudden that process by which it's moved out of our hands is so violent and so upsetting that all of a sudden we realize that this issue, this thing in our life is not just a desire, but it's an idol. So sometimes I think for us, we may not know what our idols are, but when all of a sudden our lives are rocked at that level, we realize that all of a sudden we've been worshiping something that we were not meant to worship. We've built our lives around something like a bare blanket that when it's taken away, all of a sudden all heck breaks loose, right? We're going to see that a little bit later on in the passage, but that's what idolatry is. What can idolatry look like for us, all right? Obviously, I think for many of us, we don't have little statutes made, all right? So what are, what are the idols in our lives? I think many of us can run to a lot of these things, and a lot of these things I'm going to tell you guys are good things that God often provides, all right? But what happens when we make that which God has provided, that which we want to worship, then all of a sudden we move into idolatry, all right? And so for some of us, some of our idols look like this. It's relationships and it's approval. It's the pursuit of the approval of someone else other than God that our whole life hangs on, right? And so it's natural as you guys are walking through dating, as you're walking through college, we talked about dating last week, all right? It's natural to begin to put so many eggs in that basket, so much stock in that whole issue, that it begins to frame your life, define your life, and your sense of significance and your sense of joy. If you're with someone and you're joyful and you're significant, but you're not with someone and you're not joyful and significant, then that issue has become an issue of idolatry, not of something that you're expressing gratefulness to the Lord himself for what he's provided and allowed you to walk into. So many of us can walk into relationships, can walk into the pursuit of approval and land ourselves in idolatry, not just the gratitude for what God may have provided and whatever favor he's granted us. It's not just relationships, it can also be money, right? Uh, you guys don't really have that right now, so it's not really an issue for you guys, right? Uh, but maybe one day you will, right? And so maybe even for you guys right now, education is a pursuit that you're putting everything into you are sacrificing everything that you can to get good grades so you can get a good job because eventually you want money, right? And then, will it ever be enough? <laughs> will you ever have enough to cover your needs? Will, will the house ever be big enough? Will the car ever be nice enough? And all of a sudden, money, a great asset that we can use in worship, a great asset that we can use to provide for our family, a great asset that can lead to great even worship and appreciation for the very things God and the, and the gifts that he's provided that can, can become something that we pursue and that we sacrifice everything for. Right now, you guys, even as you walk through school, you may be walking through school in a way that has made school, check this, and this may seem crazy, you've made it, you may have made it an idol. <laughs> if you are sacrificing everything in your life toward that goal, 
and everything else is just falling off the map, then it may become something that has become an idol in your life because you're devoting the entirety of yourselves to it. And if a test goes poorly or a grade goes poorly, then your whole life is shaken, your whole vision of the future is shaken because now that education and the opportunity for a job and therefore money down the road has become an idol. Not something you're allowing God to lead and direct as he would see fit with whatever he has for you. It's not just education, it's not just money, but also for many of us, our looks, our skills, our mind can become things that for many of us can become idols, right? Uh, You may not realize it now, but if something were to happen where your looks were to change or skill were to be uh, unable to be performed anymore, um, or an achievement that you've uh, been looking for toward uh, cannot be met, then all of a sudden your life gets rocked at a depth that you could never have imagined because you didn't realize how much stock you'd put in this kind of thing. So it's a high school athlete whose knee gets blown out, and all of a sudden his whole vision, his whole sense of significance is all of a sudden redirected, right? And he realizes what a sense he had put into this thing. Maybe for some of you girls, it's your looks, it's your body. And so all of a sudden, everything about your life is put toward this issue to improve this the best that it can. For some of you guys, it's why you work out so much, right? There's no extent that you will stop from how much you will work out to how much you will put into this issue of your body, your looks, your countenance, and what others therefore think of you because of that. Uh, bodily purity, bodily aesthetics, you were designed to be wholly uh, pleasing and beautiful, and that's not a bad thing, right? But sometimes the best idols are things that are good that get distorted to become way more than they're meant to be, right? Our looks, our beauty, our, tr- our achievements, our success, our money, all these things, and sometimes even for some of us, uh, family, ministry, uh, hobbies, things that just seem on the outset neutral and natural and good can also become idols, right? Uh, it's not your life phase right now, but for some of you guys, you can look at your own parents and you can realize as you look at your parents that they had created an idol out of you, which is why if you ever disappointed them, if you ever didn't perform the way that they had hoped, their whole world, their whole sense of significance, their whole sense of value shifted in a heartbeat in a moment, which is why you felt so much pressure and which is why that relationship was so harmful for you because they had created an idol out of you And it absolutely blinded them and harmed them, and it harmed you as well, right? You've seen that on the flip side. You've seen that from parents to you, right? Family, a great provision from the Lord can become an idol. The the good things make the best idols, right? Because on the outside, they don't seem bad. Ministry can be the same way. Maybe for some of you guys who are in leadership positions, maybe you guys just got an impact. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to lead in the church one day. Whatever it may be, ministry for some of y'all can become an idol as well, right? It feels like it's a good thing. It feels like for some of you guys, it's your reputation, it's your sense of significance, and all of a sudden you begin to wrap your identity around this thing that is good, but you've missed the one who's most important in it, right? The good things make the best idols, right? And we all fall in that issue every single time. And so also, let me just say, as you think about this, I I was thinking of, particularly as you think about Ephesus, though, it seems like they're making shrines of Artemis, right? So it seems like if you look at a surface reading of Acts 19, if we kind of flip back to the text itself, what is, the, what is the idol in Acts 19? Many of us would say on the surface, they're making little statues and idols of Artemis, and so the idol is Artemis, right? I'm going to argue to you guys, I don't think the idol is Artemis whatsoever. I don't think the idol in Acts 19 is Artemis, all right? Notice the verbiage of the craftsman. I want to take you guys back to back in verse uh, 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our what? Our prosperity depends upon what? This business. And the early outset of the disturbance, are the men mostly concerned with Artemis 
or their trade, their, their craft, and therefore their prosperity. Their prosperity was what they're most concerned with. In fact, notice as the text goes on, verse 27, Paul has spoken about idols, that they're no gods at all, which upsets the entire commercial system around Ephesus. And so notice verse 27, as, the, as he begins to explain why they're so upset. Verse 27, notice the first thing that he says. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrespute. Notice the first thing he says has nothing to do with Artemis, right? The issue he has is that his trade, his well-being, his prosperity is now threatened, right? If there are no gods and then the idols are not real, then Artemis is not real. And if Artemis is not real, this whole commercialization that has gone around the temple is for naught, right? And now all of a sudden his livelihood is threatened and all of a sudden he's upset. It has to, is, it, is it about Artemis? Yes. But is it about Artemis primarily? No, right? And then he goes into spin control though. He realizes that this sounds bad. And so then he goes in and gives a little lip service to Artemis. All right. Verse 27. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be regarded as worthless. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the tragedy. Ah. All right. And he goes on further. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship, oh, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Right. He really gets flowery. Right. Because he realizes, oh, this is sounding awful. Right. I got to spin this to make this sound religious. Man, we do the same thing all the time with our idols. Right. We know how to spin them and make them sound good, right? But what's going on in Acts 19 is the same thing that goes on in our lives. And the idols are rarely, really statues, right? It really wasn't a statue of Artemis in Acts 19 that was the actual idol. The idol in Acts 19 that's being threatened is not Artemis primarily, but it's this guy's prosperity. The idol that this guy had constructed in his life was prosperity. It was the ability to have money, to protect it, to have more of it, more of it, more of it. And his life hung on that prosperity, Take the prosperity away, and all of a sudden this guy has no trade, he has no reputation, he has no affluence, he has nothing. Because for him, his life is all about worshiping and devotion to this issue. And so when it's threatened, oh my, all heck breaks loose, right? The other thing I think that's fascinating in Acts 19 is this. I want you guys to think about and compare the first century church to you and I today. Think about The book of Acts by nature is a series of missionary journeys where Paul is traveling throughout the region of Asia. He's been in Ephesus. He's put a church in Ephesus. But what is the percentage of Christians from this, the way, really, they don't even know what to call them just yet, right? Within the the Asian culture at this time. I think it's pretty darn small, right? What is the number of uh, men and women that would identify themselves as born-again Christians in America today? According to Barna, it's at least 33%, all right? And what I find fascinating in Acts 19 is this. A very small contingent within the culture at the time was walking with Jesus, was threatening and going after the idols of the day, and all of a sudden those that were in the commercial centers were getting worried and upset. Why is this guy that upset of such a small little contingent of people? Well, evidently they're having the kind of impact on their culture, even though that they're small, that frankly I don't think we're having on our culture whatsoever. Right? It's fascinating. Think about Acts 19. This is a very small group of people. People are coming to the Lord left and right. They're having a larger and larger influence. But by comparison, statistically speaking, the percentage of the population that they make up doesn't even compare with the percentage of the population that the evangelical church makes up in America today. And yet, is anyone in the commercial centers of America today scared, worked up, and upset about the Christian church? No. (laughs) Is it because that the church of that day and time was having an impact on its culture that was way more stringent, way more impactful, and maybe a worship and a walk with the Lord that was depart from idols in a way that we don't? I think so, right? I want to give you guys just one example of an idol that I think exists in our culture, and that's pornography. 
Uh, I'm not going to go at this particularly, but I want you guys to know that more money is made on pornography in the United States and the world at large than, check this out, more money is made on pornography than Apple, Microsoft, eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, Google, and Netflix combined, right? More money is made on pornography than Apple, Microsoft, eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, Google, and Netflix combined, people, right? That is crazy, all right? Not only in the United States, but in the world at large. And so if that's going on because there's an idol that's been created in our culture in terms of pornography that is a worshiping of something that serves self, and all of a sudden we think it caters to us, but it begins to control us. But no one in our culture right now is concerned about the Christian church when it comes to pornography. Why? Because we don't have it making a dent in it because we're participating in it as well, right? But all of a sudden you had Christians in the culture in Acts 19 who were not participating in this kind of worship and they were distinct and they were different and it made those who were in commercial centers worried about the economy. <laughs> is a Christian church making that kind of dent on the economy in America? Absolutely not. It's not just pornography. I'd say it's even materialism at large, right? Is the American church having an impact on materialism in our culture today that the church in Ephesus was having on the Asian worldwide economy at the time? No. Is anyone in market centers worried about the impact of the Christian church? No, right? Because we are not living in any way distinct from the church or, or from the culture at large, right? We just join in just as they walk, right? So I want to challenge you guys as you think about the idols in your life, and I want to kind of turn it a little bit on us and say, hey, what are the idols in your life? For some of you guys, it may be pornography. For some of you guys, you may not realize that you may have cloaked it under academic diligence, but it may be materialism and it may be money. It may be that you're going to sacrifice everything that you possibly can toward a good job, which will one day give you good money. It's interesting that in the temple of Artemis, they were potentially actually sacrificing children, all right? It's interesting today, I don't think we actually put children on altars and sacrifice them in a bloody kind of horrific kind of way. But I'll tell you, I think in New York City and in cities like that all the time, children are sacrificed for a career that makes money. <laughs> Again, some of you guys may have been those children as you grew up whose parents said, I have to have a career, we have to have a certain standard of living, and therefore I may not get to spend much time with you. I would tell you guys today, I think you look at careers, you look at choices that moms and dads are making left and right, and it's worship of a God of money to the sacrifice of their children. That's what it is. Some of you guys may have grown up in a home like that, right? And I want to plead with you to say, hey, might you make choices, parentally speaking, that are different than that, different than what you've seen, because you can never have enough, and so don't worship that God. It will control you, and it will break you. And so every single one of us has idols, and I want to ask you guys this morning, what are your idols? Maybe it is pornography. Maybe it is money. Maybe it is the pursuit and the approval of someone else's approval and affection. And when you cannot get it and when it doesn't provide, it leaves you absolutely broken, spinning, and unsure of yourself, your own sense of worth, your own sense of significance. And when those moments happen, all of a sudden your idols are exposed and you see, hey, you put way too much into this issue, which is why your world is just spinning. You've made something that could have been the provision of God and you've made it an idol. And so when it doesn't come through or when it doesn't look like you want it to, all of a sudden your world is rocked and you're in a storm and you cannot see and you cannot figure out where you're going. It's in those moments that you begin to realize that you have an idol that exists in your life that is standing in the very place of God because life is broken. It's interesting, I think, as you look in uh, where the passage goes next, because ultimately, uh, I think, uh, or even before we jump there, I want to give you guys one last quote on C.S. Lewis. He has something I think that's great to say about idolatry, and he says this, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine, 
And now God designed the human machine to run on himself, and he himself is the fuel of our spirits that were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, and there is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. I think C.S. Lewis's quote is dead on in terms of our issue with idolatry. Again, that we think there's a provision and a protection out there that's better than what God can provide. And as we jump and as we pursue those things, what we realize over and over again is that we were created to run on God. We were created for that relationship, to know him, to walk with him, and for him to fuel our lives with significance, with joy, and a sense of purpose. And as we run contrary to him, as we run away from him toward other things, then we lose all of those opportunities. And no wonder sometimes we're not happy and we're wondering why things are not going the way that we hope for. Because we've moved away from God and we've moved into idolatry. But here's the great issue, here's the great challenge for you and I, is if we're willing to look at our idols, if we're willing to say, hey, here, here is what I have pursued falsely, here's what I've constructed as a substitute God, if we're willing to do that, then you guys need to have eyes wide open as to what to expect, because I will tell you this, idols are violent, all right? Idols may not seem like they're real. We don't really know whether to say that they're real or whether they're not, but I'll tell you that they are real and they are powerful, and when you threaten them, they get violent, all right? And they get violent way more than a three-year-old whose nails and claws are coming at you because you took away her teddy bear blanket, all right? (laughs) Idols will come after you, and it's ugly, and it gets ugly really fast. And so if you're going to have the courage to actually look at your idols... And you're going to have the courage to actually begin to move away from them. Realize that what you thought you were holding is now holding you. And so to wrestle away from its control is going to be difficult. In fact, notice what's going to happen now in our story. Because what we're going to see is that an idol has been exposed and threatened. And what's going to happen now is an attack. That idol is going to attack back. And you're going to get it in a narrative story. But I want you guys to see this is the idol reacting. All right. Notice what happens beginning in verse 28. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. The first thing that an idol does when it's threatened is that anger comes, all right? Rage comes, all right? Not just rage, but also confusion. Notice how confusion breaks out. The city was filled with confusion, all right? All of a sudden you have anger. All of a sudden you have confusion. Notice how fastly this this whole story erupts. And then it goes further on to even the threat of physical harm, all right? Uh, The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one another into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul had wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Man, a disturbance breaks out, according to verse 23, that was not small. <laughs> it was large. And notice that when it breaks out, notice how quickly it breaks out like a fire who's, with fuel that is just poured upon it, right? There's anger, there's confusion, and now there's even the threat of physical harm. This is what happens when you threaten idols that are in your life or in the culture. It gets ugly, and it gets ugly real fast. In fact, notice even how comical the confusion gets as you move further. Notice verse uh, verse 32. Then so then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. (laughs) What in the world, right? They throw these guys into the theater. People are screaming. People are shouting. People are angry, all right? Uh, It's just all heck is breaking loose. And then people are shouting one thing, people are shouting another, and they don't even know why they're there to begin with. (laughs) It just happened so fast. One thing led to another, and before you knew it, rage, bodily harm, and absolute abject confusion. I think this is exactly what Isaiah will say of idolatry in Isaiah 54. He says this, Speaking of those who have idols, they do not know, nor do they understand, for they cannot see, and their hearts cannot comprehend. 
No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of an idol in the fire, and the other half I have used to bake bread over its coals. And I roast meat, and I eat it. And then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah 44 is fascinating, speaking of idolatry, to say that for those that fall into it, their state is one of absolute confusion. Uh, They cannot see, they cannot understand. Their heart is darkened and pulled away. And so when you begin to see your idols and you begin to press against them to remove them and move back toward God, realize this, they are violent and they will react. What you've began in thinking you could hold and you could cater to you, over time what's begun to happen is it's not catering to you. Now you are catering to it. You are worshiping it and serving it. You do not hold it. It holds you. And so when you begin to wrestle and try to get free from that idol, they are violent and they react, and that process is ugly. All right? In fact, some of you guys have, have had the opportunity where God comes and says, hey, I think this is way too much of an issue in your life. I think, frankly, this is a substitute for me. You are looking to this for something that only I can provide. And God has come in his kindness and in his softness by spirits, gentle leading, and nudged on you and nudged on you and nudged on you. And you have an opportunity to begin to see that and begin to wrestle with that. But for some of you guys, sometimes your idols are revealed in a whole different way, right? Life circumstances go in such a way that all of a sudden something that you never imagined happens and that idol that you had worshipped and you had cherished can never now be fulfilled. Maybe it's a relationship that's broken. Maybe it's a career that you always imagined and now something has occurred that you can never get into that career. Maybe it's a vision of your future. Maybe it's a relationship or a family issue and you realize, man, what was a good thing you had made way too much out of. And life has crashed in on you in a way. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't the slow leading of the spirit. Life just came. God allowed circumstances in such a way where your idol was crushed. And the result was you were confused. You were spinning. You were unsure. You had no idea what God was doing. And the reason why that's occurring is because you've built your life around that thing. And you've put your weight on it in such a way that when it's taken away, it's like the floor is just pulled out. And you find yourself in a place of confusion, a place of uncertainty where people are screaming and you have no idea what's going on. If you're there in that place, even today, let me say this. Maybe God is trying to show you and tell you that you've built an idol out of something that it should have only been for me. Maybe for some of you guys, it's not that you're in that place where things are spinning, but you're in that place where God has been nudging gently and slowly to say, hey, this is a good thing. And remember, I'm the giver of good gifts. Worship and praise me, not this thing. You're moving to it in such a way that is making more out of it than it ought to be, and you're moving toward idolatry. Be careful. If that's where you're at, realize that even the process of moving away is going to be difficult, right? It's interesting, though. I'll tell you guys that that all kinds of crazy breaks out, but it will quickly subside. It will dissipate, all right? Notice what happens in verses 35 to 36. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? and of the image which fell down from heaven. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash, (laughs) right? In an instant, chaos breaks out, but then in an instant, subsides and dissipates, right? Uh, It reminds me in many ways even of uh, Jesus' own court moments where people were screaming at him, and there was one who was in the Sanhedrin and said, hey, if this is of God, then it will come about. But if it's not, let it pass. Don't worry about it, all right? It's interesting, I think the town clerk is saying things that were undeniable, that, hey, yeah, uh, there was a goddess of Artemis that was identified that was the central part of the Ephesian culture. 
I think what the town clerk and what the scriptures are trying to show us is, hey, let them promise what they want to promise. Let idols be affirmed. Let them be recognized. Let them be acknowledged because they will never deliver on what they promise. They can't. And eventually what we find is that we become more and more blind and we become more and more gripped by them and not us gripping them. And ultimately, that issue of moving them out of our lives, of not just identifying them, but moving away, while it may lead to moments of chaos, moments of confusion, those moments will subside. And here is why. First is this, that ultimately, I think Jesus has defeated those idols, right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, when he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and all the idols, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, right? Jesus' death and resurrection, ultimately what happened in that moment was he bowed head first into the wrath of idols, into the rage and the confusion of idolatry. He bowed right into it. He took it on the chin and he defeated it. Idols are not powerful enough if we're under Jesus Christ and they cannot touch us, right? Ultimately, they're going to put us into confusion. They can put us into chaos, but because of what Jesus has done, the fury and the chaos will subside because he's defeated them, right? They are lions who have no teeth. They have all roar and no bite, right? And yet they're real, and yet they're intimidating, and yet they are powerful. So we have to realize that ultimately Jesus has defeated them, and apart from Jesus, we stand in terror, all right? But it's not just that Jesus has defeated them, but ultimately I think Jesus is better. It's not that Jesus has defeated them, and so, hey, they have no bark. Don't worry about it. But ultimately the way that we move away from idolatry is realizing that Jesus has not just defeated them, but he's better, The move to idolatry first started when we doubted the protection and the provision of God. That's how it first started for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's how it starts for you and I every single time. And so the solution or the antidote against idolatry is not loving these things less. To move away from idolatry, to move away from those things that we realize we've made way too much of, the solution is not that we just make less of them. That we just beat down our own affinity toward those things. I'll tell you guys, every morning I wake up and the first thing I want to think about is sports, all right? I go straight to Dallas Morning News. I want to read about my Cowboys and my Mavericks and keep taking in the depression, all right? So, um, but honestly, that's for me. I, I realize that, hey, sports and hobbies are a good thing, but I find even in my own heart, the first thing I want to do, the first thing I think about sometimes in the mornings is sports. Why? Is there a sense of significance? Is there a sense of joy in it for me? There is. But sometimes it's my first thoughts. And the issue for me is not that I would learn to love those things less. The issue for me is that I would learn to love Jesus even more. All right? And I think the same thing is for you and I. It's not just that we say toward relationships, toward money, toward the approval of man, toward skill, toward beauty, toward any of the other things that can be idols, ministry or family. It's not that we learn to love those things less because that's not going to deliver us. The issue is that we learn to love Jesus more because he's better. (laughs) He's way better than anything that our idols can promise that seem like we're first uh, catering them or using them, but eventually they control us. And they leave us blind, they leave us broken, they leave us unhappy. They cannot provide the order system, the cultural system, the cultural order, and the benefits that they promise. Only Jesus can. And so the issue is realizing that he has defeated them and that he's better than them. And therefore, you and I move away from our idols, not by trying to discount them. Some things, some things that are frankly very, very good. But we move away from them by realizing how beautiful our Savior is, how desperately we need him, and what we need most is a greater love for him, a greater vision for him that will draw us away from those things towards him because he's better. Let me pray for us, and then Tyler and the crew is going to come back up and let you guys have some time just to worship and to praise the one who is better. The way we move away from idolatry is worship, worshiping the one who is worthy. And so let me pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks. Father, we are, as Calvin said, all of us idolatrous from the womb. 
starts with bare blankets and then it moves to things that we get way more sophisticated at and know how to spin and make them sound good. But we make the worst idols out of things that are good, whether it's family or whether it's provision from you. And Father, I pray in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to come before you and just listen to your voice. The quiet leading of your spirit, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to see what are those things that we've built our lives around in a way that's unhealthy, ungodly, and frankly, idolatrous. I pray that you allow us to have a heart that's pure for you and wants to worship you with all that we have, Lord. And I pray that you'd make your vision in our lives, your sense of beauty in our lives and magnificence and glory all the more appealing, all the more beautiful, all the more radiant and loud. Draw us to you into a love that would be more deeper, more significant, more appealing than any love we could have for anything else. Father, there is no substitute for you. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to draw ourselves to you, that you would draw us to you, that we would find in you something that we could find nowhere else. You are our best protector. You are our best provider. You provide significance and security unlike anything else can. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen.